Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead, and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And what you're about to listen to was a sermon that was preached at our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30 with our students. So I hope that this sermon is encouraging and a blessing to you today. Thanks for listening. The title of my sermon is The Mercy of Forewarning. The Mercy of Forewarning. Um, Brad, I don't know if this is going to be too loud if I get passionate. You know me. I don't want to blow, blow these students out of the building here. The mercy of forewarning. Or it's like the, the mercy of, you guys know what this is. You guys understand the concept of being forewarned, all right? Um, I think all of you are thankful for that friend that forewarns you that something is about to happen that you were not aware of. Like maybe for you girls, a friend uh, warns you uh, that a guy is going to a guy that you most definitely do not like or are interested in. And maybe you just see as a friend is going to ask you to a dance and you're forewarned about that. And now you get to prepare and know. And maybe you guys are forewarned by a friend who's like, dude, you shouldn't ask her. She's going to say no. And you're thankful, right? You're kind of thankful. You might be hurt a little bit. Or you're thankful for the dead end sign, right? It forewarns you that something is coming. Or on Tuesday, the first Tuesdays of the month, we hear the sound of what? The sirens, right? And those sirens, when a tornado comes, they forewarn us of a storm. And that gives us knowledge that a storm is coming and you get the idea. And so therefore, being forewarned about things is a mercy. It's kindness. And so... The mercy of forewarning is what Daniel 8 is all about. Daniel chapter 8 is a prophecy of the future of Israel, and it's a dark and terrifying prophecy. Um, And so the purpose then is that God is forewarning his people in advance of this coming suffering so that they may know what's coming and prepare for what is coming. Thus, it is a mercy. Daniel 8 acts as a forewarning, not just to God's people that this book is written to thousands of years ago, but it's a forewarning to you here tonight, each and every one of you. It's a forewarning to you and I, and we learn what to expect in this life as Christians and how we are to live for Jesus in this world. So let's read Daniel chapter 8. I'm going to read the whole entire chapter, so you should follow along with me. Um, This is the way that I'm doing it this week. And we're going to answer these three questions. What in the world is it talking about? Why does it matter? And how then do we respond? Pretty simple. What, why, and how. Daniel chapter 8. Let's read it together. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, so Belshazzar shows up in Daniel chapter 5, still in Babylon, A vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first, last chapter. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram in the vision standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, 
and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward, and no beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, flying goat. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes, this long horn right on its forehead. And he came to the ram with the two horns, which I was standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him, at this ram, in his powerful wrath, I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram, and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him, the goat cast him to the ground, and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of that one big horn, there came up four horns, conspicuous horns, toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them, those four horns, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Talking about the prince of the host, which is God. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper, this little horn. Then I heard a holy one speaking in my vision. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is this vision this prophecy concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate. How long will this little horn wreck God's people and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to him, to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near to where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep, and my face was to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, the wrath, for it, re for it refers this vision to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation. 
but not with power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, the Greece's kingdom, when the transgressors had reached their limit, a king, this little horn of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Those are God's people. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human, man, uh, human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Well, Lord, help us understand this vision. So what in the world is going on? Point number one, God is forewarning his people. He is forewarning his people of, coming, of a coming catastrophe. Last week, and in Daniel chapter 2, we learned that the kingdoms will come and go. Specifically, four kingdoms will arise. Babylon, uh, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, right? And in this prophecy here, um, we see God is zooming in on two kingdoms, Medo-Persia and Greece, okay? And Greece, and at the end of Greece's reign, okay? And so it ends then with the horrific, the prophecy of the horrific suffering of Israel under Antiochus the fourth. Can you guys say Antiochus? Antiochus. Okay, cool. Antiochus Epaphanes is his name, the fourth, in 175 BC through 165 BC, who is described as this little horn. So thanks to the interpretation of the text, we learn who these characters are okay the first is this ram who has two horns and daniel sees uh in the text and it represents the ferocious reign of medo persia hence the two horns the two kingdoms media and persia they came together persia was stronger than me than media hence the one horn bigger than the other just like a bodybuilder who only lifts on his right arm he's got a massive right arm Really skinny left arm, right? And that's kind of the idea here. Persia is more dominant. And so there's this ram, and he's ferocious. He's, he's uh, what does verse 4 say about this ram? It says, No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. He was dominant, a dominant kingdom. And uh, it, they seemed, uh, the Medo-Persia Empire seemed unstoppable. That is until a flying Greek goat with this horn comes out of nowhere. Just this vision is crazy. And Blitzkrieg's this, you guys know what Blitzkrieg is, right? You just, it was the tactic that Hitler used with, the, with the, the tanks just to push forward. And he comes out of nowhere. Did I get it wrong? Oh, people were laughing. So I don't know. I think that's right about Hitler. Anyways, this goat comes out of nowhere, blitzkrieg's the ram, and the one horn goes right in between its two horns, and he crushes him. So this most dominant, like who could stand up to this 
uh, Medo-Persia Empire comes around. This dude, this one horn, Alexander the Great, the first king, comes around and he destroys them and uh, is the most dominant kingdom. As one commentator says, but Alexander the Great receives no tenure. What does it say about that horn on the goat? Look at verse 8. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Alexander the Great died very young in his 30s. Out of nowhere, he was broken. This commentator says, Alexander the Great receives no tenure. As we see in verse 8, he is broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns, which are four kings. Cassander over Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus over Asia Minor. Seleucus over Syria and Mesopotamia. And Ptolemy over Egypt. Those four kings do... If you did your history, they're real, all right? They actually, it actually happened. So this prophecy is, this is what's crazy about this, before we move on, is that Daniel is seeing this in 550 BC. But what he is seeing is referring to years down the line. And what is described here actually happened. Those kings that I just listed off and Alexander the Great and all all of that. These were actual events. In fact, just in verse four alone, just to give you some context in verse four, how it summarizes the whole Medo-Persia Empire. That was 200 years of dominance in one verse. You go through 200 years of history. It's pretty crazy. Not only does this show the turbulent character of world powers that they come and go but also, doesn't it show the infallible, clear, um, uh, amazing word of God that it is, in fact, God's word and it's reliable? Now, you're all wondering, who is this little horn? Who or what king is this little horn that comes at the end of Greece's reign and dominance? Who is described four times in verses 9 through 11 as great? This little horn who grew exceedingly great, um, Verse 10, it grew great, even to the hosts of heaven, and some hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground, trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Who's this great one, this terrifying little horn who opposes the prince of the host, who is God, who eradicates the worship of the true God and crushes and destroys God's people and makes the land desolate? Who is it that throws down truth? Who is it that defies the living God? What is God talking about? Who is God talking about? And did this actually happen? Most scholars agree that Daniel is seeing the rise of the tyrant, murderous king Antiochus Epaphanes IV. Antiochus is the Hitler of 171 BC. I think I said 175. It's 171 BC to 165 BC. Antiochus... Just some history here. It's important. We've got to get the background, and then we'll, I'll, I promise you I'll get to the why and the how. Okay? So Antiochus wormed his way into power in 175 BC, and he was said to be kind of like a quirky guy. He was, he was kind of bipolarish. He was, he, was, he was very sociable. So he could win people over and, and just talk. He was a very sociable guy. I mean, you think of some of the great leaders. Like, um, they don't just come out of nowhere and influence millions out of nowhere, right? They, they got to have some giftings in that. And so he's this quirky guy, and he is warmly sociable, but he's also terribly tyrannical. 
On his coins that he made, he placed the self-descriptive logo, Epaphanes, which means God manifest. He had his picture, and it said God manifest. That's what it means. He was calling himself God. There's the one that challenges and opposes the prince of the host, which is God. It is said that he was an able soldier. He could administrate big armies, but he was always low on cash. This plays into it because he was always starting up dumb wars. Always. He was always starting up dumb wars and also paying tribute to Rome. And Rome being more powerful was like, you know, you owe me this much. And so he had to pay to Rome. So needing money, he turned to Jerusalem where his servant Menelaus handed over to him a hoard of temple treasures. They took half of the temple treasures in Jerusalem in God's temple and they carted that off to his kingdom. Well, sometime in the reign of Antiochus, there was a revolt by the man named Jason. Jason used to be the high priest. He was kicked out and he led a thousand person army to Jerusalem out of nowhere and attacked the city, but it was unsuccessful. Antiochus was visiting Egypt at the time and he saw this as a revolt by the Jews rather than Jason himself. And so in 169 BC, he returned to Israel and he looted the temple and took his revenge out on the people, and it was a bloodbath. I've never quoted Hebrew Jewish scriptures before in a sermon, but out of 2 Maccabees 5, 11 through 14, this is what they record about Antiochus and what happened when he attacked Jerusalem. He said, when these happenings were reported to the king, Antiochus, he thought that Judah was in revolt, Raging then like a wild animal, he set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre massacre of young and old, a killing of women, women and children, and a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 people were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number being sold into slavery. That's Antiochus. That's what God is warning Daniel about. That's what Daniel is seeing. That's why he's about to faint at the end. But this wasn't even all of it. History tells us the next year, Antiochus invaded Egypt. But Rome stopped him. And he said, if you want to continue to be supported by us, you need to stop attacking Egypt. So he was frustrated. His pride was hurt. And in a rage, he then turned back to Israel and ordered his chief tax collector, Apollonius, to pillage, massacre, and ruin Jerusalem. But he came peacefully. So 1 Maccabees 1, 26 through 40 states that Apollonius spoke peacefully when they came with their soldiers to the Jews, but he was being deceitful. And that's exactly what it says. It says that, that deceit reigned. They threw truth to the ground. They were cunning in Daniel 8. We read that. And they round up all the people. They built walls around the city and they started an indoctrination program to rid them of all their religion and past. And like Daniel 8 states, they stopped the sacrificial system. 
they, they outlawed it. They criminalized it. Anyone who practiced anything in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, practiced any law, was put to death. If they observed the Sabbath or any of their feasts, truth was thrown to the ground. If a, Drew, if a Jew was found with the scroll of the law, or if they found a child that was circumcised, obeying God's law, they were put to death. And to top it all off, in 167 B.C., Antiochus made a sacrifice to Zeus on the temple altar in God's temple. And you know what they sacrificed? A pig. An unclean animal. Just the most disgusting form of anti-Semiticism that you could ever think of. It'd be like going into a bar mitzvah or a Jewish synagogue now with Nazi flags, right? It's, it's kind of the same idea here. This, I mean, it's, it's terrible what they did with that sacrifice. This is just a little taste of the Antichrist. It really is. 1 John 2, 8 says, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Antiochus was one like that. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. See, to any anti-Christian government or leader who blasphemes and worships a false god or uses uh, government to persecute God's people or seduction to pull God's people away from the truth is of the Antichrist. This is why Daniel responds the way that he does. So what about all this? That's a lot. That's big history. Now let's get practical. Why does this matter? Why does it matter then to God's people and why does it matter now? Why? Point number two, to help God's people know and to prepare for what they will have to face. To help God's people know and prepare what they will have to face. God didn't have to do that, but in his kindness and in his mercy, he does. And I think you all understand this because you hate being in situations where something catches you off guard. Like my ruthless teachers in high school who would all of a sudden just say, pop quiz, right? They don't tell you, they just... You know, we got a quiz today. I went to public school. They did this all the time. No time to study. You had to know it. You didn't know what was on the quiz. Ruthless, right? I hated that, right? We, we hate being caught off guard. <clears throat> Premarital counseling is an example of this. The purpose is to forewarn two lovebirds who think that nothing could ever go wrong in marriage of all the coming downfalls and pitfalls. That's what premarital counseling is all about. We do this at the church. It's one thing that Caitlin and I did. And one of the things premarital counseling did not prepare my wife for was the fact that I guess I occasionally talk in my sleep. And Caitlin, being the brilliant woman, she started to write down every episode I would have. <laughs> and um, so this goes, this is March 1st, 2019. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Embarrassing, but whatever. This is Caitlin talking. There's a point to this, I promise. JT started talking again and yelling, Please don't shoot me. <laughs> I tried to make sure he was okay. He seemed scared, so I tried to wake him up. And he turned over and said, No, babe, really. <laughs> so I asked him if he was okay and if he was awake. And he said, Yes, I know. Please don't shoot me for signing up for the missions trip. <laughs> Come on, babe, are you kidding me? 
this was right before we were planning our trip to Milwaukee. And so I was obviously thinking about this. Clearly, he's not awake. And then he's trying to tell me that, he, uh, that he's awake and he's normal. So he says, no, babe, we need insurance in case anything happens and we get shot. <laughs> to which I got scared and said, babe, are you awake? Because he seems okay. And he said, yes, I am, babe. I'm talking about the missions trip. Are you serious? <laughs> That's it. What I was thinking, I was trying to prepare for the worst when it comes to mission strip. I didn't know what was going to happen. We actually had to call the ambulance twice. It was pretty, pretty crazy, right? And even then, I was thinking of all the potential pitfalls. But what, have been, what would have been really nice is if I got a vision of what would happen. That way I could prepare for it. That way I would know what exactly what was going to happen. That way I could prepare and then move boldly and patiently through suffering. This is why it matters. You see, God even lets his people know when and for how long their suffering will be. He says 2,003, uh, what was it, 2,300 evenings and mornings, and there's different interpretations of that, but the point is, is that it's going to end. It will end, God reminds his people. He will limit the, uh, Antiochus's power. He won't let him do this forever. In fact, it says Antiochus will be broken by no human hand, showing his weakness even. In the end, God is sovereign and he is in control. God will limit the power of the evil king by his sovereign hand. One of the things I love to do in my marriage is scare Caitlin. It's one of my favorite things to do. And it's a blast because her reactions are so great. But then there are times when Caitlin tries to get somewhere she wants to get me back, you know. And so, and I'll see her, I'll catch the corner of my eye, she has her phone out, and then she like sneaks around the corner, and I'm like, okay. Like, I got my headphones in, I'm, and then I start acting like there's, I, I have no idea what's going on. But I saw her go and hide, right? She snuck around the corner with her phone, recording, and so I, I know what's about to happen. And then I could walk, so knowing that, I could walk around the corner with unflinching confidence, Knowing what she's going to do, right by the corner, being 100% prepared for her to jump out. And she does, and then she's uh, embarrassed because it didn't work, right? Well, in the same way, God's people can now do the same when suffering comes. They can unflinchingly move towards it. They know that it will come to an end. God is being kind to them. God forewarns his people, not only in Daniel's time, but also for us Christians today. And we could do the same. And this is why it matters, because Jesus forewarns us of what is to come in John 15. I want you to turn there with me, because I want you to see this. This is the point. This is why Daniel 8 matters. John chapter 15. Verse 18 through 20 and chapter 16. This is why it matters. We're still on the why. John 15, 18 through 20. Jesus says this. He's, he's, he's in his final hours with his disciples. He's about to go to the cross. He's in the upper room after they did uh, the Passover. And he's teaching them. He's trying to comfort them. He says in verse 18, John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Dear Christians, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. 
If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Why is he warning them of this? Why is he telling this? Look at verse 1 of chapter 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will indeed put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, the pig to Zeus. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I've said these things to keep you from falling away. That's That's why Daniel 8 matters. You see? The mercy of forewarning. How do we respond? See, the New Testament is filled with forewarnings of trial, suffering, persecution, but also with promises, dear promises and instructions for us. So how should we respond? That's my last point. First and foremost, in the same way that God is forewarning his people of a coming evil one in Daniel chapter 8, there's one that will come. And that he will limit his power and have victory in the end. So it is with the message of Christianity to you tonight. That there is one who is coming. That the church exists to forewarn all men and women, you here tonight, of of the coming judgment upon sinners. You see, for our sin. That those who break God's law, those who throw truth to the ground, Those who trample upon God's law by disobeying it. Who live for themselves. Who do not trust in the Lord for their salvation. They will be broken just like Antiochus. You will be broken unless you repent and believe in the prince of the host. The prince of the army of heaven, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for sinners. Who lived a life that you and I should have lived. And died the death that you and I deserved. This is the most important response to the message. Second, Christians, we must have a long-term view of discipleship. We must have a long-term view of passing on the faith. See, through this vision, Daniel learns that his exiled people will return to their land. That's a blessing from exile but that it will be centuries before the Messiah comes. They will have to go through suffering. Therefore, in order to be prepared, they're going to have to pass on Daniel chapter 8. They're going to have to disciple their people through the generations. They have to have a long-term view of discipleship. Listen to how relevant this comment about Daniel 8 is to our situation today. In the meantime, the Israelites were to live out their faith in a Gentile world under circumstances that would make it more and more difficult to do so. They had to count on the sovereignty of God to sustain them generation by generation, crisis by crisis. They also had to trust the power of God to control the flow of world empires as they rose and as they fell. God's agenda is never in jeopardy. Nevertheless, They were to be prepared for the long term. See, generation after generation, 2,000 years since Christ has come, and yet people have passed on, have had a long-term view of discipleship. 
of helping others follow Jesus by teaching them all that he has commanded in his word, by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, do you have a long-term view of discipleship? Are you discipling? Are you following Jesus? And are you helping other people follow Jesus? Not just today, but for generations. And this is why every single week, if, you're under, if you don't know why, every single week, I get up here and we emphasize Sunday morning. Why we emphasize the church. Because the church is God's way of preserving the truth from generation to generation. See, youth ministry for you, if you started in sixth grade, it's only last seven years. The church lasts your whole lifetime and forevermore. It is eternal. And that's why it's vital and that it is in the church that we are to be discipled together, moving together, arm links with, linked arms together, holding on to the truth and passing it on to other people, discipling, helping other people follow Jesus. And this is why you have adult leaders and you should learn from them. You're adult leaders here. You should learn from them because they have a long-term view of discipleship. Otherwise, they would not be here. Passing on the faith to you generously every Wednesday, sacrificing their time for you because they love you. Do we have this long term view? Lastly, Jesus's words capture the reason why Daniel 8 and the mercy of forewarning is important to you and I. I have said these things to keep you from falling away. Just to highlight our dear Savior. How kind and merciful our God is that he cares so deeply for you that he would provide for us a helper in the Holy Spirit to keep us from falling away. That's how much Jesus cares about you. That's his gentle and lowly heart. That is the Savior in which we are to cling to, to believe in, and find life in. The Savior who died on the cross for you and me. And it's the message that we are called to pass on from generation to generation, no matter what crisis comes in this land and in the future.